here for your for your honor and for your glory in Jesus name. Okay, so um, we're gonna quickly. Uh, you put, Anthony put up that God. I call it the uh, God's presence wheel. So we've been talking about this for weeks, right? And what we've essentially seen is we've seen the characteristics of God through the Torah, right? So we've already gone through Genesis, right? We've uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? And we've seen all these different things. And it's always in response to something that we do, right? So we had the fall, so God had to show his grace and purpose, right? We keep going through all this. We've seen the rebellion, the idolatry, but we've always seen God step up and renew his covenant over and over, no matter what the behavior is. And when you always have to, when you look at the, the Israelites, the, the, the thing we want to do is probably criticize them because we don't understand why they would see the power of God but yet respond the way they did. But guess what? We've seen a lot of that too. We've had his son come and yet we still are in rebellion. And so we can't look at them from that perspective and not have some kind of empathy. So as we've done this, today we're going to talk about God's endurance. It's funny, when I started to prepare this message, I was thinking about ours because I'm just a selfish, idolatrous person myself. <laughs> and so I was like, no, 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 that's, that's God's characteristic. And it's in response to our weakness. And the weakness comes from the fact we can't fulfill the law. We can't, we can't do everything that we're supposed to do, and we need Jesus. So that endurance is God enduring us and what we've put him through, right? And so hopefully in the, in the midst of all this, this hasn't been an intellectual exercise for you. It's been more than that. It hasn't been something where we just were learning about the history of the Jewish people. It has to be more than that. Hopefully it's been because you've been trying to tap into what truly is God's character. All the things that happen, right? All the things that we have questions about, understanding God's character. If you want to know somebody, you need to know their character, right? And we see that evident every time something happens. And we see his response in that. Um, and then clearly out of that comes that plan of redemption. And that's been the whole purpose of this series is because we want to tie in what we see in the gospel, what we would think, normally think of the gospel is because this is the gospel. It's a continuation of it, and it's not a separation. So in going to that, we're going to have two rules of engagement uh, this, this, for today. All right. The first one is to understand the meaning of the Hebrew word for heart in the Old Testament, which is lev, lev, lebav depending on what form it's used in. And the reason being is we're going to see that, I think, 17 times in the 17 or 18 times in the scriptures that we read today. And it's more than what we would think of it. All right? There's no word in ancient Israel for the brain. They knew there was one, but they, didn't know, they, did, they just looked at it as a ball of mush. They didn't understand the processing that goes on in there. So the heart was where they thought, right, all of the thoughts Right? Everything that was coming out of their, of their mind was coming from out of the heart. Right? They knew the physical organ of the heart because they slaughtered animals. And they knew that the life-giving came from the blood, right? or came from the blood that the heart was pumping. Right? So that was very important to them, and it was more than that. It's where you think and make sense of the world, right? all your thought life, the center of your intellectual and emotional life, right? where you made choices motivated by, by the various things that affected you. So when you see the word heart in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you have to understand it's, there's much more weight and gravity to it. So that's the first rule of engagement. And for you military guys, you know how important this is. And I know Jonathan's over the Pacific Ocean area, uh, Pacific Ocean right now flying, so, but uh, they, they certainly understand rules of engagement. And the second one is to try to read the Bible through the eyes of a first-century Jew. So if you can throw up that next slide for us, Anthony. Now... Never did I ever think that Nicolas Cage would be in my sermon. <laughs> but it's sort of an illustration because how many people saw the movie National Treasure, right? Loved it. Like one of my favorite movies. Uh, they don't even make good ones anymore. But if you don't know the story, essentially he steals the Declaration of Independence. Long story. Because he knows there's a treasure map on the back. And he can't read the treasure map because he doesn't have the proper glasses. Okay? So... He has to find these glasses that Benjamin Franklin supposedly made. So he finds them. He finally gets them. He's able to flip the de declaration over. He's looking, and there's this, like, 3D thing that pops up, and it says, here at the wall, which means Broadway and Wall Street. Somehow they figure that out. Anyway, um, watch the movie. So anyway, he gets that. So, but unfortunately, what happens is the bad guy comes. He gets the declaration, 
Ben takes the glasses. He gets arrested by the FBI. You know, he stole the Declaration of Independence. So, of course, he gets arrested. And he's sitting in the FBI office. And when he had looked through the goggles, he just or the spectacles, he didn't do anything with the lenses. They have these little levers that change the lenses. So he's sitting in the FBI office. Harvey Keitel is the FBI guy. And as he's sitting there and they're talking, he's flipping the little things that change the lenses. And when he does, he says to himself, oh my gosh, there's more to the map. So the next time we see him with the spectacles, with the declaration, he turns it over and there's another message which allows them to go and start finding the treasure, which I think is a great analogy because the word is our treasure. If you really want to understand the gospel, you must be able to do it through the eyes of a first century Jew. So I'm going to tell you constantly to put your goggles on. And what I mean by that is the first century Jew wrote the New Testament. Paul, John, Peter, all first century Jews, the disciples. Jesus was a first century Jew. You have to understand them looking back at the Old Testament, if you want the, if you want the gospel to pop out for you and understand it's not just some flimsy thing that came about when Jesus you know, came to the earth and changed everything. You need to have some understanding of the Old Testament. You need to be able to go back and forth textually. The congruency and the intertextuality of the Old and New Testament is way more than you probably understand. And the more you know of it, the more this will be important to you, and it will help you in your worship. It will help you in your relationship with Jesus, right? So anyway, though, so those are our two rules. You're going to hear me you know, constantly talk about those things. So a quick overview of Deuteronomy. Um, obviously, it's the last book of Torah, right? It's not five books. It's a one single story divided into five chapters, essentially. Moses wrote all of them, right? So sometimes we try to sit there and separ separate and segregate those, those books, but really it's all one story. And we've been reading that whole story, and now we're finishing up with the final book. It's more than historical or biographical, right? Um, it's prophetic, but really it's the foundation of the gospel. Everything we read in the New Testament, you, if you, you can trace almost every single, single thing that they say to a variation or a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Um, so it was written um, as the Hebrews were about ready to go into the promised land, right? This is, this is going to be Moses' last hurrah. Um, he will not enter because of his disobedience. If you want to go back and read that, it's in Numbers 20, Mirabah Kadesh, where he disobeys the Lord and strikes the rock um, twice um, to get water because he's frustrated with, with the Israelites. I wouldn't have gotten in the promised land either, I promise you. There's, there's no chance. So uh, I don't criticize Moses for that at all, uh, especially if he could drive like I did. I, there's, yeah, no chance. Um, it's referred to as the second law. And the reason is, is because there's a lot of repetition in here, right? Moses talks about the story of the Ten Commandments again, the golden calf. There's laws that are repeated. So essentially, it sort of gets the nickname. Not, not saying it's justifiably so, but it's called the second law. Um, it's divided into three sections, or essentially three sermons. Uh, the first 11 chapters, um, you're going to get historical recounts, right? The covenant restrictions or stipulations, the Ten Commandments again. You're going to get the Shema, right? Some of you may or may not know what that is. We're going to get into that later and how critical it is. Uh, chapters 12 through 26, basically it's a, just a rundown of laws. They're about relationship, tithing, um, food, all the various things that we had. And, and some of it's a recapitulation. And then in chapters 27 through 34, just, I mean, it is chock full of so much stuff that you'll end up seeing in the New Testament. Um, the blessings and the curses that, that Moses, you know, basically has. Now, you have to remember, he's not going into the promised land. He is sitting here as a father, the patriarch of his people, his family. And he can't go where they're going because he's not going to make it. And so he's sitting there, and this would be almost like on his deathbed at times, where he's sitting there saying, listen, you've got to do this. I love you so much. If you're going to be, if you're going to do well in life, if you're going to have the relationship with God you're supposed to, you need to do these things, right? All those if-then statements. Um, and then um, you have my, his final exhortation, um, which, again, is just a, a set of impassioned if-then statements. And then his flow of succession, which he tells Joshua, right? We know Joshua is the one that leads them into the promised land. Chapter 32, the Song of Moses, it's a poem. 
And if you want to know prophecy, start there. I mean, from, from Moses all the way through Revelation, start in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy if you ever want a homework assignment. Because Jeremiah, Zechariah, everything came out of the Song of Moses. So if you think, well, all that stuff started with the prophets, yeah, Moses was a prophet, right? And, and it's amazing when you read chapter 32, all of the nuggets that are in there. And then he has his final blessing, um, and then the recount of his death. Um, obviously, Moses didn't write that. That's a joke. Um, so, all right, let's get into the body of the message. Man, we're gonna, I'm going to have to speed it up here. I am going to suggest, and I don't, wouldn't normally say this, and of course I haven't preached before, so uh, I'm asking a little liberty, um, but it's probably going to be very difficult for us to be able to, for me to respect your time without, if I sit there and wait for everybody to flip over for these 10 scripture verses, <laughs> it's going to take a while. It's going to be up here, so don't feel like you have the need, so, because right now we're clicking up the, uh, the top of the roller coaster, and once we dip over it here, it's going to go until it ends. So if you can keep up, great. If not, it's going to be up there. Uh, but just for the sake of time, we're I'm just giving you a warning. So our first message is going, or our first scripture is going to be from Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. I printed everything out, so I'm not flipping. So I promise you that these were taken directly from the Bible. I'm not just reading my own words. So because um, if I took time to flip, we'd be here a lot longer. So Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Um, this is during the Sermon on the Mount. Right? So Jesus, this is his first, he's been in public doing things, but this is his you know, first real time where he has you know, a throng of people that he's praying to. And this comes after all of the Beatitudes. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all so, I'm reading this because this whole idea that the Old Testament is unhinged or unhitched from, or we, or we can unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament, it's heresy. You cannot do that. You cannot take God's redemptive plan and cut it off and say this is where it starts when he's been prophesying about it and, and showing it through his people since, you know, 4,000 years prior to Christ. Okay? And, and so that's it's a little bit of an aside. Um, but that being said, Jesus, came, so he's saying, listen, don't, I'm not, I'm not speaking so you don't have to listen to the law and the province, because I'm fulfilling all of it. And when he says one iota, one dot, those are the smallest pieces of he, the Hebrew alphabet. So we would think of, well, I'm going to cross every T and dot every I. He's basically saying nothing, everything's going to be done. Nothing's going to be left undone until all has been accomplished. All right, so now let's put our spectacles on, all right? All right, and again, so that we can see this congruency and this interconnectivity between the Old and New Testament, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 9, and we're going to go through verses 4 through 7. So start keeping the heart meter. Every time you hear the word heart, sort of remember the fact that that's one of our rules of engagement. All right, so Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into this to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm that the word of the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God with wrath in the wilderness from the day that you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. A couple of ouchies right there, right? We can sit there again and criticize and say, well, the Israelites are stubborn, right? They're rebellious. That sound familiar? Right? Um, so he's not giving them this land because they're good or they're special. They're special because he chose them. And basically Moses is saying, don't forget that. You're not getting this because you're a righteous people. And you're not just getting it because the people that are in the land are unrighteous, but because God, God's glory is going to be shown and he's going to make sure that he 
he absolutely fulfills his side of the covenant, right? When you hear Jewish people say, I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's because those were the three men that he gave his promise to directly. He spoke it directly to them, which I can't even imagine. So he's, he's keeping his promises to the descendants of those three. He said he was going to do it, and he's going to continue to do it. Um, so again, <laughs> this, this whole idea of being stubborn and rebellious, let's hold on to that for a second. Um, so far, we've got two hearts, right? We're gonna, if we're going to have the meter up there. All right, so now we're going to go just a page or two over, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16. We're going to get three hearts in this one. So he's speaking to Israel again. He says, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth, or I'm sorry, heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and loved on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise, therefore, the skin, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. So we're seeing this, this again, stubbornness, rebellion, right? It's grabbing. We have seen it. Like, if you think about the stories that we've, we've talked about over the last six weeks prior to this week, the stubbornness, right, and the rebellion and the selfishness of, you know, these ingrates that we'll look at, um, which you better introspectively look at yourself with this, too. Um, but so this is what, this is what he said. You're rebellious, okay? You're stubborn, all right? So let me help you out with that. And so he says, right? And this is after he's, he's spoken of the golden calf again, because he's gone back to tell them, listen, I'm going to remind you some things. Remember that golden calf thing where God was up on the mountain? And then you were like, yeah, Moses is dead. Let's, let's, let's worship a golden calf now. And Aaron makes it right. And then Moses comes down, throws the stone tablets, Ironically, he doesn't get kicked out of the promised land for that because it wasn't disobedient. It was anger, but it wasn't disobedient. But he does it. But now he has the new tablets given to him. Um, and he says the requirements are just this. Just fear God, walk in his ways, love and serve him with all your heart and soul. Easy, right? Um, at least there's like, we see this progressive plan. Okay, And so all this was for their good. right? It wasn't God was giving in these outs continuously. He was lowering the bar, essentially, if you want to take a look at it that way. Um, and he did this because, right, of the fathers and their offspring, right, keeping his commandments. And then circumcising the heart, right, this was the command. Now, you have to understand, and again, this is looking at things with, with those goggles on, the way that a Jew would understand that they were different from everybody else in the Middle Eastern world was that process of circumcision. We think that's crazy, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But forget about how it is culturally. You need to understand that that was their degree of separation from the rest of the people around them. And that was their sign of the covenant with God himself. So when, when Moses starts talking about circumcising the heart, now he's taking this to a different level. And in this, he says, circumcise your heart, right? Everything that, you know, those rules of engagement, everything about you, take away all the fat, all the stony flesh, Right? He's saying that's how you get to accomplish this. That's how you'll get rid of your stubbornness stubbornness, and your rebelliousness. So we're going to stay in Deuteronomy one more time. Um, so we had three hearts in that one. Now we're going to go to Deuteronomy 30. And this is going to be tough to follow because um, we're going to have verses 1 through 3, 6, and then 11 through 14. Um, I don't like it when other pastors do that because I'm like, what did they leave out that I need to know? But I think, I think I've kept the, the integrity of the text um, going through here because it, it, it sort of falls in line with all of the themes that we're talking about. So uh, chapter 30, verse 1, and when all the things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, all your heart, and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Right? So he, he's basically saying, my grace is going to come back to you when you go into the land. Right? So, so he's trying to do everything he can to restore that relationship with his people. 
We go down to verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So now we've progressed from you circumcise your heart, which good luck with that, to now after these if-then statements, God circumcising their heart. And we're going to see that even perpetuated even further. And that's why having these goggles that we're going to need in order to understand when Paul talks about this later, how awesome it is that God continuously tried to create these, these off-ramps for us and for the Jewish people to be able to come back and reconcile with him. All right. Um, so again, he's, he's essentially on his deathbed. He's admonishing him, you know, listen, because this is later, right? We, the first two that we just read from Deuteronomy were in the beginning of this, of this in his first sermon. This is close to his end, right? So these, these words have weight. So when he says, and now, remember how we, we'll see in the New Testament all the time, therefore, every time you see the word therefore, it's always a pivot statement, and you always have to ask yourself, what's it there for? When he says, and now, that was a pivot point in this entire text. Um, and if you read verse 29, 29, you'll see that because it's about revealing things that only that they can see. Um, that's just another little homework assignment. Um, so, again, God will circumcise your heart. And then he says, this obedience, it's not too hard for you, right? Because he says in verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. Mm. And I'm glad Moses is optimistic at that point. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. All right, so Moses, and, and if you, those questions that he just asked, they should be slightly familiar. And if not, we're going to go back here in a second and you're going to understand why they are familiar. Um, but he said, listen, it's not too hard for you. All this is right near, you know, just obey his voice. Um, because obviously he doesn't want him to go out thinking, you know, you're just going to get crushed. You're going to be dumb. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's giving them hope, which they should have, because God's the one trying to fulfill this. All right. But those questions in 12 and 13, now adjust those spectacles, start playing with the lenses here a little bit. All right. And by the way, we had heart five times in that and three in that critical verse in verse six where God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, and God with all your heart, or, you know, serve him with it. So, again, if you understand how important that word is in the Hebrew lexicon, it becomes very understanding of the fact of how weighty and how important these verses are. So Romans 10, and we're going to start in verse 5. Now you're going to understand why those questions are familiar. Because remember, Paul's a first century Jew. What's he reading? What was he an expert in? Paul was the most ardent Jew there was. Brian, I won't use your term because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> so, inside joke. Um, but anyway, Paul, this was everything that he studied. So this is where he's going to draw from. So to sit here and say that you can't understand the, in, the congruent nature of the scriptures between the Old and New Testament is just mind-boggling to me. All right, so Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Who's he talking about? Moses. Because, of course, this is what he's trying to prove. When we're, and remember, this wasn't too long ago. It seems like a long time ago that we were in Romans 10. But it really wasn't. And you'll remember these questions if you don't already. Um, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness uh, that is based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ Jesus down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, just like Moses said. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, which that's different. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart everything that you are, not just the thing that pumps your blood, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So again, this heart, this conception of understanding how imperative the heart was 
in the personhood that you were, the relation, how you were supposed to have that relationship, Paul's words have much more weight, especially when you put it contextually back with what Moses said. Um, so those questions, right? right? We had Moses asking, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, right? Who will reach across the sea? Paul uses the same kind of questioning because that was, that was his master, essentially, from, from, a, from a textual standpoint, right? Not, not like God, what I mean like his teacher, would have been one of them would have been Moses because the Torah would have been he probably almost would have had to memorized. So when he asks those questions, it's the same thing. You act like it's this hard thing. It's really not because you don't need to go up into heaven and bring it down. You don't need to go down to the depths and bring it up. You've got Jesus, right? Because he says right that you're that um, if you confess with your I'm sorry, who said the word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. He said it's already there. See the whole thing. Everything has changed right? We, we now have the Holy Spirit working with us and for us to be able to have all these things in our heart. Um, and instead of our obedience being in the law, right? Our, and our, our, we, we can now, uh, I'm sorry, we can, the word of faith we can proclaim in Christ Jesus, right? That he can justify us, right? We couldn't do it ourselves. So he's the one that became our redeemer, the propitiation for our sins, right? He is the one that did all this, right? We can't do it based on the law because we're going to fall down every time. And we've talked about that for weeks. Um, But Jesus justifies us. And Paul's alluding to this by using uh, some of those scripture bases in in Deuteronomy. But does does obedience go away now? I mean, is it unnecessary, right? Even Paul addresses this in his letters, right? You don't just walk away from obedience just because now you can have this, this, justified relationship with God because of his son, Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth, right, and, and take all of that into your entire being, into your heart, right? Um, but is obedience still necessary, right? So goggles, start flipping them around here. Get, make sure you can see them clearly. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy 6. All right, and we're going to start in verse 4, and this is where we find the Shema. This is the first two verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Probably have heard that before. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I know you've heard that. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, Anthony, if you'd put that first slide up, we're going to get to a little bit of an explanation of what this is, right? But there's always been a call to obedience, right? We've seen that. In the Old Testament, right, we had all these laws, which were impossible to keep. No matter how good of a person you were, you had no chance, right? Um, and so that obedience, of course, for, especially for Old Testament Jews, was much more out of fear and awe. I want you to think about all the unbelievable things that they saw from the time they were in Egypt, right? They, they had the firstborn stricken, but during Passover, right, when they washed the blood of the lamb with the hyssop onto their doorpost, right, they've seen that miracle. Then, of course, across the desert, they see Pharaoh's army coming, the Lord spits the Red Sea, Right? All these unbelievable, I mean, how could you not sit there in awe and fear of this being that you really don't have the connection with yet, who's doing all these things for you, right? The, the fire and everything that's up on top of the mountain, right? So a lot of this obedience would have been out of fear. And that's just, as a parent, if you're a parent in here, or even if you're a son or a daughter, right, that only goes so far. And God knew that. And that's why he talked about this, and Moses continually starts pushing the prophecy forward in regards to, and don't think of prophecy just as end-time stuff. Prophecy is, is much more than that. Um, we, we sort of went through that when we were in Corinthians. Um, but anyway, his plan was always for obedience to come out of love and relationship. It wasn't out of the ability for him to crush you, Right? and to, to do things that were, that were impossible to follow. That was never the plan. And it's clearly evident as you go through Scripture. Um, and this was an appreciation. We had the wheel before with God's endurance. Again, he's been enduring us, and I mean humankind's collective, since the garden. He's been enduring all this for our sake. 
And he's been had this plan for, for salvation and redemption. So in the first two verses, right, which if you haven't heard, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. That is called the Shema. And it's essentially a Jew's Lord's Prayer. Just to, right, we, we think of the model prayer. That's something that people have in their house, right? Um, they have a little card maybe up on their, on their dashboard and something like that. Well, for a Jew, and especially a first century Jew like Paul himself or Peter or even Jesus, which we'll find out here in just a second, right? That was a centerpiece, all right? So much so that we see this slide. So it looks like a Jewish soldier. And if you notice up here, see on his arm, he has that little box and he has another one up on his head. That's called a phylactery. And what that is, what, you know what he has inside of there? Those two verses. Because you're to take the word wherever you go. And they didn't know what your brain was, they, but they knew where your hands were going, and they wanted wherever, whatever they were going to do with their hands to make sure that God's word was in it. Whatever they were thinking, their whole being, the word of God was so important to them that they wanted it to go. So, so especially during Jewish festival times, you'll see them in times of prayer on Shabbat, on Saturdays. You're going to see very, you know, fundamental Jews wearing these types of things, all right? And those are called phylacteries, if you've ever seen it. And now you'll know why. It seems weird to us, but they wanted the Word of God, which they literally would write down on a piece of paper and stuff in there. They wanted that to be the center of who they were at all times, right? And so anyway, um, the next slide, that is a mezuzah or a mezuzah. And what that is, is that's something that goes on a doorpost. You can see where the hinges are. So a Jewish person, even people who don't really follow, you know, God, you know, in the way we would think, um, they'll still have this. This is on their doorpost, and inside of that is the Shema, those two verses. There could be other things, too. It depends on what sect you're in, right, what's important to you. It doesn't just have to be the Shema, but the Shema is in all of that, these two verses. And so when they would walk in and out of that house, right, it's the main door. You ever see them? Now kiss it on the way out, because they want that transfer. They want the Word of God to go wherever they go. They don't want anybody coming in and out of that house that's not affected by the Word of God and that power. I mean, it's no offense to you Notre Dame fans, but, you know, when you go out the locker room and hit the play like a champion or you're at Clemson and you rub the rock going down there, not the power that this has. All right? So, so this is – so that's – and I – I'm telling you about this because this is where this heart transformation comes from. This is the hinge of our understanding that our obedience needs to be out of devotion and love and relationship, not out of fear and smite and things like that, that sometimes we've done a horrible job of making sure that people understand that. And that's not, that's not discounting the fact that it's God needs to do those kind of things that he can, but that's not what he wants to do. Um, anyway, so... Um, Let's put the spectacles back on, because now we're going to go to Matthew, and uh, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And you know what? I don't, you know, Jesus was, <laughs> Jesus was what he was. But guess what? He was a first century Jew. What did he study? But when the Pharisees heard, all right, so this is towards the end of Matthew, right? He is now a lot of public interactions that he's having prior to leading up to his time on the cross, right? And so publicly, he's, he's doing so many sermons, having so many conversations with people, um, and now he's in one with the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? So this was very public, all right? So this just wasn't a hidden conversation like it was with Nicodemus um, when he said you needed to be born again. But he says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer... Hmm, um, <laughs> asked him a question to test him. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, right, this is Jesus. Would have been a, this was a slam dunk, right? And a complete layup, right? But they're testing him. And he says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The Shema. He repeats something every single Jew would have known. And they're like, okay, didn't trip him up on that. Um, and we don't get a lot of color sometimes in the gospel. We don't get a lot of those blanks filled in. And I can just see, or, and he said, this is the great and first commandment. 
But I can see probably the Pharisees going, okay, he got us. Let's go, guys. And they're about ready to turn around, and there's this effective pause. Like, you know, and I, I'm not saying this is scriptural. This is just me in my mind thinking about how cool it would have been if he just gets this pause, and he's like, oh, that's not in the scripture. Again, that's me adding to it. And he says, and the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We think of that, and we're like, well, yeah, duh. That is not what a first century Jew would have understood. So when Jesus adds to the Shema, he is rocking their world. We always ask, why did they kill Jesus? He was so peaceful. For them, for them, this was, I mean, for a first century Jew, this was heresy to add to the word. And Jesus is like, no, the second one is just like it. He's taking authority in that scripture. We sit there now on the back end of this and think, yeah, that's, that's really cool. But at the time, again, that's why you need to understand things that the, the, the history, the culture of that first century world. That's why they killed Paul and Jesus and all the others, because they were heretics, even though they were professing things in the New Testament that we can clearly see. Um, anyway, so, so now the Shema has two parts, essentially, right? Um, because Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, I'm not coming here to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm coming to fulfill it. And this is how you fulfill it with these two commands. I made it easy for you. Take all those thousands of other commands that, you know, those dietary laws and all that. I got you down to two. <coughs> and guess what? You can't do them. He distilled all of them down to two. And that's still not good enough for us because we still can't fulfill all that. Um, but anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, so the Shema has two parts, right, uh, for, for, uh, for uh, what, what we call Messianic Jews. So uh, a couple months ago, uh, Jonathan Kretzer was nice enough to invite Jonathan and Melissa, and Juliet joined us, and Susan and I went to a Messianic Jewish service for Yom Kippur. Uh, if you're not f- familiar with the term Messianic Jew, that's a Jew by birth and by faith that who actually does believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we went to this service, and they, so they say the Shema every single time. And I've watched multiple services since then, and they do it every service, right? So they sit there, and they repeat Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and then they'll say this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, because Yeshua HaMashiach told us that. And that's Jesus' name in Hebrew. And they do it every service because it's so important to them. It's such a fiber of their heart, everything that they are. And that's why you need to understand that. Um, so, um, so that was just a quick aside. But again, so, so great, we've got these two commandments. Great. Well, all right, what now since we can't fulfill them? Um, but the rules have changed, right? We already talked about this. Jesus brought the Holy Spirit. And so this justification that comes with confessing with your mouth and believing with the entirety of who you are, not just the heart, it's who you are, right? It's totally different, but we still need to, we'll talk about this because this is, goes into the sanctification process, all right? Just your spectacles again, because now we're going to go into Romans, again, something that we just read earlier this year, and we'll read from Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? It's, it's wordy. Try to get through it with me. <laughs> we'll hit, the, we'll hit the, wave, the wave tops here. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one who is a Jew, who is merely one outwardly, nor is, I'm sorry, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter or the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul, again, remember the importance of circumcision right? That is, that is how a Jew identifies himself. That's how he gets spared, right? As soon as that happens, right? 
That's why when they take that baby, like, hey, no chance it's here. You know, on the eighth day, we're circumcising that baby because he's God's. And they think that spares them. And that's not. And that's what Paul talks about here. You can be circumcised, but if you don't fulfill the things, then you're condemned. So you need to have a circumcision of the heart. Again, this is groundbreaking for a first century Jew to be told the circumcision is not physical and it's in the heart. Those are the reasons why they killed Paul. And he knew that was going to happen, but he knew it was a fulfillment of the law, right? And the funny thing is, we have Moses saying that, but yet this was something because it was spiritual and it was after Jesus came, it changed everything. Um, So again, it's evolving, right? Um, So again, like I said, we went from, in Deuteronomy 10, you circumcise the foreskin of your heart to Deuteronomy 30, where God's going to do it for us. Now, Jesus has done it for us the minute we confess and believe in our heart, right? But that sanctification process, remember we said that obedience needs to continue, right? So if that obedience needs to be part of it, because again, it's out of our relationship, it's out of our love, right? We want to be obedient because of the fact that of everything that God's done us, not because we're scared of him anymore. Um, so um, why does, so let's ask two questions. So why does this need to be this way? And then the other good question is, what does it look like? Right? Because those would be justifiable questions. As you're sitting here, you should be asking those. And by the way, don't let anything, and this is nothing against Jonathan, Brian, Tim, or anybody that you see on TV or YouTube or myself, don't you dare outsource your spirituality to people like me. You should know this stuff. You should study this stuff just as much or more than I did because you are responsible for your relationship with God. I can't have that for you. Jonathan cannot have a great relationship with God for you. So as we go through this, I just want to make that perfectly clear. I I am not the end of God's authority up here just because somebody gave me the pulpit for 45, well, probably even beyond. I'm sorry. I haven't haven't even looked at my watch because I don't want to just crush myself. Um, Anyway, but hopefully I've still got your attention. Um, So anyway, so again, um, why does this need to be the case, right? Again, obedience should be out of the heart because that should be the the least we can do to give back. So all the things we don't like that God said do, don't do, right? Jesus took those laws further, right? He said, oh, it's not good enough just not to murder. Don't hate people in your heart, right? Don't look at a woman with lust because that's adultery. Man, Jews didn't like that. It was already tough enough as it was to do all this other stuff, right? But that obedience needs to come not because we're trying to run away from something. It's because we're running to something. Um, Anyway, so just remember in this, right, your heart, everything that's in you, right? Um, It's been in every scripture except the first one that we read, right? 18 times in seven verses. Um, And the reason why that's understood, because we've talked about God's character, right? We've talked about the importance of what our heart is. Well, what about God's heart? That would be the embodiment of who he is. All the characteristics. Can you put that, the God's perseverance wheel up there for me? So all those characteristics that, uh, of God, those, that's his heart. That's why we need to know who and what he is and what his character is, especially in the face of when we make a mistake. When we know that, we don't sit there in fear. We sit there in appreciation and love because of the fact that he would be willing to send his own son for us. Just amazing. So he has a heart for you. And his endurance, that piece of it, is out of his faithfulness. And it spans from ancient Israel all the way to today. So everything that was written in the Old Testament was not just for those Old Testament Jews. It was for us as well. Because we knew, he knew we were going to be grafted in. You don't think he knew that when all this stuff was written by Moses? Um, so again, he endured all of us because he sent his son. Um, and, and we need to endure because he endures us, right? We love that scripture that says we love because he first loved us. And I'm not writing new scripture. That's not what I'm saying. But you know what? I want to endure because he's endured me. I think I broke the two and a half. I know what I've put him through. Yet he still accepts me every single time. And what is it? What does it look like? 
And I could try to tell you what that looks like to have that devotion and that obedience out of love and relationship. You could start with Matthew 22. And of course, right? Love the Lord God with all your soul, all your might, right? In your heart, everything that's about you, love him. And then love your neighbor as yourself, right? We could start there and end there and be that. But I love in Psalm 119, and Anthony, if we'd go there. <laughs> and don't turn there, because I, I want you to listen to this. Because I want you to hear the psalmist. And if you really understand the emotion that's behind this psalm. Psalm 119, starting in verse 19. And just think about the em- I can't, and I'm going to break up multiple times, because I can't read this without being desperate for the heart that this came out of. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. If you can't hear the desperation in that, I'm... I don't know what else I can do to to see what in Scripture, how when somebody's that desperate to be that close to the Lord and what that means. And that's what it's supposed to look like. I wish I could pray like this every day and be on my knees and be that thankful and, and, and want God so badly that I would be in tears every single time I got on my knees. But that's what we need to yearn for, that, that relationship, that love. Because then obedience will come out of it. We, we have it all wrong. We don't obey to get things. Because he's given us so much, we obey. And that's a hard attitude. That's got to be at the fiber of who you are. Keep, keep God close. Love his word. Right? It might seem silly to have those phylacteries and the mezzotots, but think about what that represents. Don't go anywhere without his word. Keep it in your heart. Jesus said, abide in me, and I'll abide in you. And that's what that means. You can't abide in him without his word. He was the word that became flesh, right? John talks about that right in the beginning as he starts his gospel. It's so imperative for us to have that type of relationship out of desperation. We need to love him with all of our whole heart, mind, and soul as well because of how much he loves us. Our, our, ple- our pleading with him is a form of weakness, and not in a bad way. As a, as a man, one of the biggest things I would say when I coached my guys at UNF was excuses are a sign of weakness. And they are. But, <laughs> but, but when we look at it from a scriptural standpoint, it completely flips on its head, right? And this admission of weakness is always in the face of God's endurance of us. And that leads us to our last scripture. And everybody said, (laughs) I knew it. All right. Um, So I'm actually going to start in in 2 Corinthians uh, 12.8 instead of 9. So forgive it that it's not up on the board. And the reason, because I I realized this morning as I was saying my message for about the fourth or fifth time, um, giving context to what Paul's saying here. This is where Paul has the thorn in his side. We don't know exactly what that is. A lot of commentary on what it may or may not be. But he's coming out of this desperation. And it's the same thing. So we've had this in Psalms. And and Psalm 119 was just a beautiful psalm, even though it's the longest one. Um, But anyway, in verse 8, if you start there, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. right? That thorn in the flesh that he has. So he's pleading. He's not just asking. He's pleading God. And he says in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Can you put the wheel up for us, Anthony? I know I'll finish the verse. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How does God respond in our weakness? He endures it. He wants it. Because that's where that obedience and that love of his word and that relationship, that's where the obedience is going to come out of. Again, motivating people to do things out of love, way more powerful than anything else. And he's always been trying to get to that point for us. So, excuse me. I'm just going to move this thing. Don't worry, it's not a problem. It's a handkerchief. So today, God's grace extends to you as well. It always has and always will be sufficient for every single one of us. Whether you want it or not, it's sufficient. This is his character in the face of our downfall. And this was his plan all along. And the beauty of it, it's irrefutable. If you've accepted Christ, and you know that you have at least a glimpse of what this is like, I hope this jump starts you further down the path of your sanctification. And that you will seek obedience because of the fact that you love God so much and understand what he did for you. This goes all the way back to Torah. This wasn't something that just started when Jesus got here. And that's what makes it even more powerful. And that's why we need to understand that. And we've been so blessed by going back and going through that. And for those of you that haven't experienced this, maybe understanding the desperation that comes out of wanting Christ as opposed to doing it because your mom or your dad wants you to or your kids want you to. Maybe today will be the day that you understand how beautiful and how special it is to have that relationship with your creator. The one who for, I mean, 12,000 or 1200 B.C., 1400 B.C., that's when all this Moses was writing down. This has been over 3,000 years this has been going on. For you to have the opportunity to hear this today and figure out, do you really want that or not? And for those of us who have it, how far are we willing to go? So anyway, I, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be up here today, but um, it's just been an honor uh, just to preach God's word, even uh, here, anywhere. So I thank you for putting up with me. Appreciate it.